the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following is a conversation between Yancey Strickler, co-founder of Kickstarter and author of This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World, and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving, on AM 970 The Answer, WNYM, in New York City. Kickstarter is one of the most extraordinary business success stories of the past decade. But from when it was founded in 2009, the values of generating profit and growing fast were not the only ones they lived by. There were other equally important values, and those other considerations, and that mindset, have come together in a new book written by Yancey Strickler, the co-founder and former CEO of Kickstarter. It's called This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world, and he is here with us tonight to discuss it. Good evening, Yancey, and welcome to The Business of Giving. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You know, I believe that just about everyone listening has heard of Kickstarter, but I'm a little less certain that they know what it is. So what is Kickstarter? Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, well, Kickstarter is, is the platform that pioneered crowdfunding. So the idea of lots of people putting small amounts of money together to achieve a collective aim, that was something that really entered the mainstream through Kickstarter. What's distinct about, about Kickstarter as a platform is it's focused just on creative projects. So it's people making movies, making records, writing books, opening restaurants, mm. doing entrepreneurial things. There's nothing charitable or like explicitly businessy. You're not, you're not paying your payroll through Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, but over the past 10 years, uh, it's helped independent creative people around the world raise $4.5 billion Goodness. and bring 150,000 new creative projects to life. Who knew? <laughs> Unreal. No kidding. No kidding. Well, you've always been known, Kickstarter has been, for their moral compass, not being myopic about profit and growth. In fact, you became a public benefit corporation. How did your experience as a CEO shape your view of the business world? Well, I mean, for the, the three of us who started Kickstarter, Perry Chen, who first had the idea, Charles Adler and myself um, – you know, we were accidental business people. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no intention. Perry had this great idea that he shared with Charles and I, and we were all compelled by it. And then we realized, well, to make this idea real, it seems like that means starting a company. It seems like that means starting a website. And you're kind of, you know, it's like, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Yeah. You know, it's like each each little piece we were learning as we were going. Um, but that that was hard. <laughs> you know, that that makes you um that causes you to make a lot of mistakes maybe a more experienced person wouldn't make but it also allows you to question a lot of standard practices and just say are are we sure this makes sense for us does this feel right to us mm-hmm. so we were sort of unindoctrinated um and also the three of us we all came from music backgrounds and sort of the our cultural backgrounds had instilled in us an idea of you know don't sell out what matters is doing the right thing. It's about the long term, not the short term. What's meaningful is like standing up for your beliefs. And we just always saw eye to eye on that from day one and just knew that the, if this were to be successful, it could only be successful in one way. And I think it's almost like 
It's almost like a retro causation of like over time did we learn what yeah. we were doing, mm-hmm. right? You know, you're just sort of following what feels real, and then and then eventually we learn about the public benefit corporation status that had been made newly legal at that point. And it's like, oh, that's that's what we are. Yeah, that, that, that's why we haven't fit into any boxes up until this point. But it came, you know, it wasn't it wasn't that strategic. It was mm-hmm. more. It was the only way we knew how to do it. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever feel like a fish out of water? Because, you know, the ethos of Internet startups then, Silicon Valley, Masters of the Universe, that's who the media was gushing over. You didn't really fit into that world, did you? Yeah. I. The, the only time I felt in water was like <laughs> being in our office or being around creative people, being around artists, the people who use the platform. But the outside world, no, I I... I I, I always carried a lot of anxiety of what if everybody else is right and we're the ones who are wrong. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and I, you know, how could I be sure? How could I be sure that we're we're the right ones? Because there have been <clears throat> things in the past that we thought we were right about that we weren't. We, mm-hmm. we discovered that we were wrong. So I I really struggled with a lot of imposter syndrome. Um, there's a moment I, I write about in the book that, it, you know, once you write about it, it stops being embarrassing somehow. But it was an embarrassing moment for me. But I was standing in line at a grocery store while I was CEO and you know, as a CEO, you're always worrying about everything. And I look at this rack of magazines next to me, and there's a Harvard Business Review that with the cover says, like, go to war for talent, be paranoid. You know, the rules, the new rules of competition is this hyper-aggressive thing. And I looked at it, and it just struck this deep chord of fear in me. And I immediately thought, oh, man, maybe my problem is I'm not paranoid enough. And I ended up buying this magazine. Oh, I'm yeah. like I'm like the co-founder and Copies CEO for everybody. of a, quote famous company, <laughs> and I'm like fear buying a, a magazine at a grocery store because of the sh- the the feelings it it creates in me. Um, and so I was very susceptible to those things. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, that was a struggle. But now I see that as you know, it it is a good thing because it allowed me it allowed me to always kind of reset the compass of where where we stood versus everyone else, being aware of of that gap between how we saw things and how others tend to see things and trying to translate that. Mm -hmm. So we didn't want to be seen as altruistic or charitable or anything like that. We're like, no, we want to, we want to succeed like anyone wants to succeed, but just, we have a different idea of what that means. Which is balance, you know, some balance in this whole thing. Well, there's more I want to talk to you about with Kickstarter and I hope we get back to it later, but I really want to talk about this book because I'm so excited about it. You know, often when somebody sets out to write a book, um, there's a pivotal moment, a pivotal moment that captures the essence of what they want to say. Did you experience such a crystallizing moment that brought it all together, and the idea of this book originated? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I had to stumble across it, just like anyone does. You know, a- a- any interesting idea. But I was living in the Lower East Side, in New York. I-, I lived in Lower East Side for 18 years, mm-hmm. and uh, and I was watching the neighborhood change um, from gentrification. And there, there was just a moment when Mars Bar, which is a punk dive bar created in the 80s, been been here for you know multiple decades. Uh, in 2013, it got torn down. It's the corner of 2nd Avenue and, and, and 1st Street. Yep. And it got torn down and replaced by a TD bank. Mm-hmm. And what was wild, what was wild was that there were already four TD banks within a 15-minute walk of that same corner. And as someone who lived in the neighborhood, I was just like, what in the world? Like, is there some virus infecting storefronts overnight that's just changing, turning them into cell phone stores and Dwayne Reed's and yeah, Dwayne yeah. and just TD Banks? the soul out of the neighborhood. Yeah. And so I ended up – so it was just so – it was, you know, unmissable. Mm-hmm. And I, I started researching this and 
discovered that the number of bank branches in the city had increased, you know, hundreds, almost a thousand over the previous ten years. Against what everybody else thought that with they that they would disappear. Yeah, but, and this is in the just, financial crisis. This right. is a post financial crisis. Yeah. This is happening, and. Um, and it just dawned on me that in every one of those locations, there had been something like Mars Bar, a, new, a business run by New Yorkers for their fellow New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember just like really thinking about that. And at the same time, I came across this study by uh, – it's called the Kaufman Institute that studies entrepreneurship. I think it's out of Stanford. And they did a study of entrepreneurship rates in America over the previous 40 years. And this the this, this same year, they put out this, this findings that showed that from 1977 to 2014 – the entrepreneurship rate in America dropped in half per capita. And, you know, and this is the same time every magazine is telling you, like, everyone has a startup. Kickstarter is, like, the perfect embodiment of this. But yet it's not true. And and that decline in entrepreneurship rates, that is the same decline as the decline in smoking rates Mm. from the 1970s to today. Well, that brings it home. Yeah. So think about how many more people used to smoke. That's how many more people used to be entrepreneurs. But now they're blocked by these larger forces. And so I just kept trying to understand what was happening, what were these larger forces. And so I ended up, um, I was, I had to give a big talk at a big event not that long after. And a, a member of my team, Julie Wood, challenged me to like, don't just sell Kickstarter, like yeah. do something. Knock it out of do the park. Something. <laughs> and thank God she did. It was and, over in Ireland, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was in Dublin. And so I, I talked about Mars Bar. Uh, I connected it to why there were so many movie sequels. I connected it to the fact that Every top ten single was written by one of two balding Scandinavian men. You know <laughs> why? Why Taylor Swift is on the cover of every magazine? And I, what I said was the reason behind this was a a belief in financial maximization, which I defined as the belief that the rational choice in every decision is whichever option makes the most money. Mm-hmm. And I said this was the hidden default setting that was just guiding every one of our choices. And to me, that's the only way it makes sense that. You have five of the same bank within, you know, two square miles, and but there's you're lacking all sorts of other businesses at the same time. That's why Oklahoma's on Broadway right now, and West Side Story is coming. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> no it's, risk, just maximize. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it you know eventually once the goal became financial maximization, uh, all of these organizations, these institutions, just came to this realization that's a lot safer to just trot out the same things over and over than it is to try to do something new. Mm-hmm. And so that's how you end up with a more, a more homogenous world. That's how you end up with chains everywhere. And that's how you end up with what feels like a very limited sort of future that we can work towards. Yeah, right? We yeah. have a hard time imagining anything different than where we are now. Yeah, and it would seem that every other kind of decision you would make other than that is emotional, is irrational. Yes. Um, do you find that financial maximization has been around from the, the dawn of time? Or is this a more recent phenomenon, maybe the Milton Friedman shareholder wealth <laughs> right, you know, article? Right. Well, I think it's um, – I mean – Certainly capitalism like lays a groundwork for it, but I see capitalism as being distinct from what we're going through now. I think financial maximization is like a fundamentalist wing of mm-hmm. capitalism um, that, yeah, I think emerged in 1970. And, and it happened with the Milton Friedman essay in the New York Times arguing that um, the only social responsibility, uh, a phrase Friedman puts in skeptical quote marks 27 times in his essay, yeah. the only social responsibility a business has is to make as much money for its shareholders as possible. So up up until that point, you know, in the, in the 1950s and 60s, 
you know, this is the golden age of capitalism, the the, the explosion of the middle class in America. Um, and what was happening then was that capitalism was competing with communism to see which could be the which would be the dominant social ordering structure of our globe. And they were competing. Uh, they were competing to see which system could produce the biggest middle class. I remember that. Who could bring them? Which one could bring the most people up to just a place of of stability, of security? And so the, the U.S. being focused on the goal of growing the middle class produced amazing returns, and everyone played by the same rules. Businesses like retained employees, retrained them. Everyone was on their best behavior. Mm-hmm. And then capitalism started to rout communism. And then since then, the idea that the goal of financial wealth is to create broad economic security is gone. Instead, the idea is the goal is to just grow as big a pile of money as possible and that if we do that, that somehow everything else will just work out because, you know, I don't know, rich people will give it away to charity <laughs> and whatever. And, you know, just don't, don't worry about that part. And once we get enough money, it will all work itself out. But we're five decades into that, yeah. into that strategy, and it has yet to work. Mm-hmm. Five decades. So you have this idea. You give a speech at the Web Summit over in Dublin. Uh, you take the transcript. You post it online. Hey, you get a pretty good reaction. And then near the end of 2017, you decide to step down as a CEO of Kickstarter um, and probably said to yourself, what comes next? Yeah. So you go through a process, I would presume, to yeah. make that determination. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that process and how this could be our future ended up at the top of the heap. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know what that process would be, and I was expecting my first day not being a CEO that I would just, like, sleep for 72 straight hours. Sounds but good to me. <laughs> instead, I woke up with more energy than I could ever remember having had before. And I, what I realized was that, you know, being a leader of an organization that size and doing it for so long, um, it just – it wore me down – having to always think in terms of the organization, think in terms of the brand, think in terms of the community, never acting on my own desires, filtering everything through an increasingly nebulous, you know, Like a derivative or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so suddenly I like woke up and I'm like, oh, I got a, I got a hustle for me. (laughs) And that's, that's, that sounds fun. You know, that's, that's interesting. So yeah, I wasn't sure what to do. And I had this realization that, you know, as a CEO, I'd done like corporate planning for years. You know, you do quarterly plans, what projects you're going to do, what what your goals are. And I thought, well, I should, maybe I should try to treat myself like I'm a I'm a PBC. I'm Yancey PBC. Wow. And so I spent a week applying like corporate brainstorming and framework tools to myself. Mm-hmm. I like I did a SWOT analysis of myself. I did like these, you know, these values exercises, things I'd read in, you know, books like The Five Dysfunctions of the Team, things like that. I I acted like I was the team. You're the team. And it it weirdly worked. Like it jarred loose a lot of stuff I probably wouldn't have thought of. And at the end, I, I had like five things I could imagine doing, five Could different paths. Give us a couple of those. Uh, they were to be a, a freelance journalist, as I had been before Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Um, they had been to be a teacher. Uh, it was to write a book. It was to try to develop a, a, a TV series about music. I used to be in the music world. And then the last one, I, I, I wanted to challenge myself to think of a job that would have no public facing thing whatsoever. Like I have to be, I have to, what if this is just all ego? This is just all an exercise in ego. So I was like, what could I do if no one would know I was doing it? That yeah. was also an idea. And so, um, so th- I decided to kind of mirror my initial process. So the next week I devoted a, a day each week where I woke up and I pretended that that was my job. Oh, that's really interesting. So I, I, I was a freelance journalist. So I spent the day coming up with story ideas, writing pitches, imagining what I would do. Yeah. And 
the whole day I had to do it. I tried not to like ex- like think about what I was doing. I was just doing it and then just allowing my body to tell me if yeah, I liked it or not. Yeah, your body is the best, the best barometer. You know, people have told me about jobs and they rationalize it. But jobs that create energy yeah. are the ones you should seek because your body can't lie to you. Yes. So your head can lie to you really yeah. well. Oh, it's very so good So you were it. looking to feel it as yeah. opposed to think about it. Yeah. So it was like I was putting on and I, I had to you know, fully – I was like method acting my way into yeah. these. And, and when I did the book one, it was like, you know, what should I write about? What would I do? Could I do it? I – you know, just the, my body was tingling. You know, I, I just knew that it was the thing to do. And then I also tried to follow a similar process of like – I'm going to, you know, I, I need friction. I need to force myself to do things. So I gave myself these really hard deadlines. Okay, if I'm going to write a book, then I must have a proposal done by this date. Mm. I must have a contract by this date. And I told myself if I fail to meet these things, then, like, I'm not going to do this. Oh. And that created just an urgency. And, you know, that that went to the extent that I gave myself only a year to write the book because I thought I need to – this book needs to kick my ass for me to do a good job. Yeah, yeah. And all of those things ended up being really powerful because they just – you know, they created a drive um, that got the best out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I I had no when this started, I had no idea where it was going to lead. But I I feel like this process was like built on acknowledging my weakness as a human being, my fallibility as a human being, the ways we trick ourselves, yeah, the ways no. we and and you don't have to, to tell me about that. Yeah. So <laughs> how do how do I balance that out? How do I how do I look at myself with compassion mm-hmm. and give it the tools to, to find the right answer? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, it worked phenomenally. No, um, you know, that's a real gift to have that kind of self-awareness. And even when I've hired people in the past, I've always looked, are they self-aware? And yeah. when you are self-aware, you can get to places and achieve things that you otherwise couldn't because we have this cloud or with this we fool ourselves. Well, in this book, what you wanted to do is to redefine and expand our understanding of values mm-hmm. beyond financial maximization, and that is not an easy thing to do. Mm. So what you've done, you've provided us with a device, and that's the Japanese bento box, and you've coined a term called bentoism. Explain both of them to us. Yeah. Um, so uh, during the process of writing the book, I, I – I had like a real eureka moment one day. Um, I I'd drawn on a piece of paper uh, a hockey stick graph. This mm-hmm. this in like tech and business is the ultimate. It's like the crucifix of business. It's it's oh, a yeah. line sloping up and to the right. You know, whatever it is you're growing, money, sales, fame, it's growing so fast, the line just goes straight up. And as I was looking at this, it suddenly occurred to me that this was just a small piece of the picture because the x-axis on the bottom measuring time it goes from now all the way into the future. It goes far beyond where that hockey stick graph is. And the y-axis, measuring your self-interest, it also keeps going up because our as our self-interest grows, it goes from me to us. Mm. Our responsibility increases. The difference between being a solo entrepreneur and having an organization is enormous. And so when I saw this, I, I suddenly looked at all this blank space that I'd never considered <laughs> before. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> and doing there? And... Uh, and so I sort of like demarcated out, made little boxes to show there were different spaces there. And as I looked at this graph, I thought, what did I just draw? And I just wrote down a description next to it. I wrote, this is beyond near-term orientation. Uh-huh. And as I looked at that phrase, I realized it was an acronym that said BENTO. Uh-huh. And I said, oh, this is a BENTO box. Because the BENTO box, it comes from a Japanese word meaning convenience. Okay. And the brilliance of a BENTO box is that it has four compartments and a lid which means you can carry a balanced, a balanced variety of dishes in it without them getting spoiled. 
Uh, bento ensures you don't eat too much of any one thing. It's always mm. a balance of things. And the bento also honors the Japanese dieting philosophy of harahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. So I thought, I've made a bento, but for self-interest, mm-hmm. for our values. And so the bento of self-interest shows that the place where the hockey stick graphs lives, that's our now me space. What okay. I want to need right now. That's That'd be the, the lower left-hand corner. The bottom left say. corner of the bento. Yeah. The bottom right corner of the bento, that's future me. That's thinking about the grayed, wrinkled, wise version of yourself that made all the right choices, that lived up to its commitments, that you know, lived the obituary you wish you could have. Yeah, I'm there's the person that. I said I was going to be. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's also in the top left, there's now us, the people that you rely on and that rely on you, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. And finally, in the top right, there's future us, your children, and everybody else's children, too. Mm-hmm. So every decision we make impacts all these spaces, now me, future me, now us, and future us. And every one of those spaces influences every choice that we make. But today, we are blind to all of them, except for now me. Now me. That's we struggle. It. We struggle to perceive any of those other spaces. As you said before, we see now me as rational and real, and those other spaces as emotional and unreal somehow, less real. And so the bento, so bentoism is meant to create a, a framework for expanding how we think of self-interest. And I also believe that in each one of those bento spaces, there are also other values that natively live and rule that we should think about when making choices there. So financial maximization rules the space of now me because financial security is important in like a Maslow's hierarchy kind of way. Can't do the other three unless you get that one taken care of. I got to be able to to live and eat and absolutely, absolutely. I'm not. I'm not the least bit anti-money. I just see it as a tool to get to higher values. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's make this more real and talk about. Your own bento yeah, box. Yeah, yeah. I think you keep it on your home screen or your phone. Yes. Tell us about your bento box, Yancy, and what do you have in those four corners? Yeah, so I, I first, you know, first created just this framework, and then I just started playing with it myself, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to think about it. And so I, I end up writing just a simple question in each bento for me to answer. You know, what does now me need? So I try to think about this very selfish part of me, and I just list down all the things that I care about. The first time I did it, you know, my now me needs good health. I want good habits. I want money in the bank. I want to feel love, you know, things right. like that. Right. Your basketball so, team to win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's selfish. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't have to be virtuous. Other spaces can be virtuous, yeah, right? Like yeah. that's part of it, too, because we all carry different voices. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up doing that and eventually came down to putting little slogans in each bento. So my slogans are, and now me. When I am at my best, I am showing people the matrix. That's mm-hmm. what I wrote. I am I am helping people to see the world. You know, I I'm fortunate to be able to be paid to get paid for that. That yep. brings me financial security and like my soul is alive when okay. I can do that. Uh, my future me, my values, the old version of myself. What that person tells me matters is that I create harmony, that I bring disparate things together and make them harmonious. That is a skill that I have, and that's also that I don't sell out. Mm-hmm. That I stay true to my values. That I don't cash in something that matters to me for something that's less important. My now us, which is about my relationships to other people, that's about deep time, deep time, focus time. As I went through what was at the center of my relationships, I realized why I'm such a bad friend at texting, but why I'm so great at spending a weekend together. Because I'm about really deep, profound time and if you give me that with a good friend three times a year, like, we're great. No, we're no, great. no that, that's, uh, I, I, I say that. Like, going to these reunions with 80 people you can skip, but give me some really good time, yeah. quality time. Yeah. That is great and stuff. And finally, my future us, the, the future I'm working towards, it's to build a better matrix. I'm not imagining a world where there are no 
hidden defaults or, you know, but it's just how do we incrementally improve that to where we're being guided to make choices that truly benefit us. So this bento is like a, it's a roadmap for self-coherence for me, uh, for me to make choices. Um, I, I consult this and think about what lives up to my values. So okay. if I could give an example. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you and your wife have been using this yes. for about a year now. Yes. Share with us an example of how this is, uh, works in practice. So probably the juiciest example uh, would, be, <laughs> would be that I... I could use some juice. Yeah, in a radio yeah, not, show, let's go. Not that juicy. Uh, uh, you know, one of, the way, one of the ways I make a living is giving talks, right? Mm-hmm. You, get, you give talks to organizations, and I get asked to give talks uh, sometimes by, by companies that I'm not a huge fan of, uh, financial services companies, things like that. And in the past, I've always said no to those things because I'm the don't sell out guy. And like I felt that instinctively. Box and number two. Box number two. And when people would ask me to speak at these things, I, I would get angry. I was, it was like my insides would be torn up. And so soon after creating the bento, I got invited to do another one of those kinds of things. And before saying no, I thought, actually, my wife told me, you should ask your bento, see what it says. Oh, great idea. Let's do it. I asked my bento. So the way you do, the way you ask your bento a question, you sort of isolate each voice and just answer it from its perspective. So I asked my now me voice, should I do a talk for a company I don't like? Well, my now me wants me to show people the matrix. It says, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. My now us is about deep time focus. Should I do a, co- a talk for a company I don't like? Yeah, that probably seems like you probably are creating deep time with some mm-hmm. people. The future us, which wants me to build a better matrix, says absolutely you should. Like these people have such influence. Like this is exactly who needs to build that better matrix. But then there was still that future me voice that said, don't sell out, that said no. Mm-hmm. It said, are you sure you're not just in this for the money? And when so I saw that- So it's three to one right now. <laughs> it was three to one. But when I saw that, I suddenly had this insight that this this future me voice that said, don't sell out, it was like a bouncer standing outside and it was protecting me. Mm-hmm. It was keeping things out. But I also had the right to tap that bouncer on the shoulder and say, it's okay. I got this. I can handle this one. Let this guy in. Let this guy <laughs> in. And what, I, what that made me feel is that these conflicting feelings, I, I could put them in more order, and they were all empowered. And I was empowered to make a choice while like, thinking and looking at all of them. Right. If you think about like the Pixar movie Inside Out and like these different voices inside of us, imagine where like an organized way that you can listen to all of them, mm-hmm. and then you can make a, a decision, and everyone can agree, and you just move forward. And that that's what it felt like. So I ended up giving that talk, which I never would have done otherwise. And bizarrely, I go and I find out the company is all about wanting to change the kinds of things I'm all talking right. about. So shame on me yeah, yeah. for being so cynical. Um, but yeah, it's. It's really, you know, the, the phrase that keeps coming to mind is self-coherence because mm-hmm. I feel like the, the modern world forces a lot of self-compromise. We all wear so many different hats. Doing one thing for one hat means doing something weird for another part of yourself. So what would it mean to try to bring those things more in line? And that's what the bento box does. I yeah. mean, you are not delegating your life to the bento box. No, no. All the bento box is doing is helping a conversation inside of you and giving you clarity as to the things that you need to base this decision on, and then you ultimately take that guidance and make your own decision. Nor, nor does the bento enforce any political values, any, any, anything whatsoever. Yeah. It's simply making you aware of what is inside of you. Beyond you, you give a great example in the book of Adele yeah. and how she's used this concept to uh, sell her tickets. Tell us about that. Yeah, so you know Adele, the... One of the most popular pop stars in the world. In 2014, she was going on tour for the first time in years. And 
When Adele goes on tour, her tickets immediately sell out, and then they go on secondary ticketing websites and get sold for much, much more. Yep. So, uh, you know, normally an Adele ticket's about 50 bucks because mm-hmm. she prices her tickets low, but you have to buy one for hundreds or thousands of dollars. And Adele realized this meant that she was either playing shows for wealthy fans or or she's playing shows for people who are spending more money than they could probably afford to mm-hmm. see her play. And this, like, rubbed her wrong. Um, so she found a startup in the U.K. called Songkick that had developed an algorithm that would measure how loyal fans were to an artist. So they would analyze social data, listening data, whatever they could find, and they would identify, here's, your, here's the top 20,000 fans of you in a given market. And Adele used this algorithm to then invite those people to buy tickets, putting no restrictions on whether they could resell the tickets, but the, the bet being that if we sold tickets to the right people, they won't resell them. And the, the best fans will get to go for a fair price. And so for these shows, less than 2% of those tickets got scalped versus 10 That's to 20 incredible. times for that for other shows. And so Adele conducted a world tour up until recently, the biggest world tour in history, that was optimizing not just for her own financial return, but for the now us value of fairness and community. Every one of these rooms, she's creating a... Uh, you know, a co-created space by everyone who paid the same ticket price, who are there for the same reasons. And she did this not for altruism, not not out of like a, a pure heart. She she was trying to create an experience and mm-hmm. she used an algorithm to do it. It's It's replicable. It's a mathematical formula to create this. And to me, this is a very exciting example and also a strange one if you really think about it, but an exciting example of new values to orient our decisions around yeah. and to do so in a way that's not about being woke or having the right the right values, but it's just simply about there is an outcome that we would like to have. There is there a, is there a way that we can create it? Yeah. So I feel like once when you can get values to that sort of place, they become really powerful. Yeah, because otherwise you're having to you're trying to convince someone with a moral argument, mm-hmm. and, and that's you know that's that's tough. It doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> doesn't I think we have well. found that that's that yeah. is really the heart of society right now. Um, you know, I've never known that much about Kickstarter, but I have always known a few things about you, and I want to go back to those days a little bit. And one of the things I've always known about you is that you were known as a great problem solver, mm. and so much of leadership is being good at solving problems. How do you approach problems? What, do you have a mental checklist? What makes you so good at getting to the core of the issue and, and deciding what needs to be done? Man. Yeah, uh, yeah. wow. Um, I think – I read all the time. Mm-hmm. I read all the time, you know, and so I feel like I'm I'm constantly. What are you reading now? I'm reading an amazing book right now. Right now, I'm reading a book called Time Loops. This is why I said retro causation earlier. Time Loops is an amazing book by a physicist making the case for the ways that the future impacts the past, mm-hmm. and um, it. I'm convinced that parts of our brains and parts of all the molecules around us live in the future. And that time is not linear, um, and so it's a, it's an argument by a physicist explaining this, and it's, you know, it's 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 Changes tremendous the way you look at things, and you're always looking to change the framework, and that's a wonderful way to do Absol- it. Absolutely. So I, I I'm just always reading. I, I you know that's since I was a kid, that's the only thing I've that's the thing I've most loved to do. So I, and I think the other way, I think a lot through metaphors. Like I I. You know, I'll just think about how other people approach things, and I will try to apply those ideas to different contexts. Just one one silly example. Uh, but when I started writing the book, I was immediately hit with, like, a, a wave of imposter syndrome. I remember lying on the couch complaining to my wife about how I can't do it. I can't do it. Who am I to write this book? 
And my wife just lovingly snaps at me and says, whatever it is you have to do, this isn't working for you. And it's not going to work. <laughs> and I like could feel – Wives are good at that, aren't they? <laughs> I could feel how true that was. Yeah. And I had this immediate flash of this great Beatles story I've always loved, which is that in 1966, the year the Beatles released Rubber Soul, wrote, recorded, and released Revolver – and wrote and recorded Sgt. Pepper's. Those were great years. It was also the first year in which the Beatles took vacations on their own. Mm-hmm. And for Paul's vacation, he spent a month driving across France and Spain by himself. But, of course, he didn't want Beatlemania. And so he decided to go in disguise. He used Vaseline to slick back the mop top. He wore glasses. And he grew a mustache. Mm. And so for that month, Paul uh, was not recognized. It was this transcendent experience for him. And when he got back to London, he called the other Beatles. He told them about it. And he said, we can't make another Beatles record. It's going to be too hard. We all need the freedom of being somebody else. And this was the idea for Sgt. Pepper's. Mm -hmm. We couldn't be Beatles anymore. We need that freedom. And so when my mom, when when my mom, when my wife says, when my wife said, um, whatever you have to do, you have to do something. My immediate thought was, I have to grow a mustache. (laughs) So I did. I grew a mustache so that I would look in the mirror and I wouldn't see good guy Yancey who worried about everything. I would see somebody somebody who didn't care what anybody thought. Yeah. And maybe a writer even. Yeah, maybe a writer (laughs) even. And so I had to again it's like acknowledging my it's it's treating myself with love by acknowledging my weakness. But I needed I needed a a reminder so prominent that it was growing in the middle of my face. To keep me from falling back into the same story that I was telling myself. Mm -hmm. So I feel like a lot of the problem, you know, a lot of it is just, it's just, just trying to learn as much as possible and and just getting insights into how other people have cracked things. Mm -hmm. And, and I just have an infinite curiosity. I'm very patient. I don't, I don't assume the first answer is the right answer. I'm willing to like really grind on something. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think I by think the writing, best question to ask people sometimes is what else? Yeah. Because sometimes that first answer is never the answer. Yeah. And it's usually about the time you get to the third what else that you begin to get to the core of yeah. what's really at work there. You were a music critic, so you must have really appreciated. Just the proliferation of what the Beatles did. I mean, they were turning out records, uh, albums, whatever, every six months or something? Yeah, the Beatles. It was incredible. Every, a single every three months and an album every six months. That's they, unreal. They, they, they were highly structured, highly structured. Yeah, and you're trying to get one lousy book. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know <laughs> I know, I know. It's true. It's you true. were the CEO of Kickstarter, I guess, from 2014 to 2017, and that may have been sort of the professionalization of the organization. Yes. Uh, it went from 55 to 170. Yes. Uh, systems have to be put in place, and you had to hire a lot of people. Yes. Tell us how you go about hiring. I'm sure you had a lot of successes. I'm sure you made a lot of mistakes. What's your theory on hiring good people, not just for the organization, but also for them? Yeah, it's it's true. I, it's I feel like that was 99% of my job was was hiring people. Yeah. Uh, well, one one interesting thing, I mean, being in the tech space, um, you know, people want to work in tech because they want the financial upside of like, hey, you're the you're the guy that gets the Google stock in 1999, <laughs> and now you're you know absurdly wealthy. Um, but Kickstarter, we had said that we didn't want to go for that kind of outcome. We didn't want to sell the company. We didn't want to IPO. Like the idea was to be a just a good business for the long term. You pay out a dividend every year. Mm-hmm. If the company does well, profit sharing, that kind of idea. Um, and so one thing that I always did is I would lead off with meeting candidates with talking about that. Like you're not, you're not going to get rich in this job. 
You know, if, if we do well, it's going to be like we co-wrote a hit song together in the 80s. You know, <laughs> we get a check for whatever, a few grand every year. Yeah. And like, but that's it. That's the, you know, that's, that's the financial upside. The other upside, though, is meaning. Mm-hmm. The other upside is that the nine hours that you're not with your family, you're actually doing something that matters and you're, you're going to feel it in your bones every day. Um, so that was like, that was a, an initial filter. Um, the other thing I would do, especially with hiring executives, you know, I treated those as every meeting was a date. And, and the, my goal for the date was to make them want me. But I would still reserve judgment till the end. But mm-hmm. like, you know, you always want to make someone else want the job, but mm-hmm. you decide. But ultimately, you still have the power to decide who is the right person. But, you know, just trying to always keep people engaged, even as I'm like trying to figure things out, trying to keep that in, inside my own head. Um, and then the other thing I would say is that there were uh, there were a handful of people internally that I. I always trusted their opinion on people. Oh, and, good. and a lot of what you're looking for is, is this someone that thinks they're better than someone else? Is this someone that's willing to do the hard work? Mm-hmm. Is this someone that has self-awareness? I'm a big basketball fan, and the coach of the San Antonio Spurs, Greg Popovich, maybe the greatest coach in all sports. The rule to he play— He sure gets a lot out of uh, the, his players, doesn't the, he? The first to play for the San Antonio Spurs, rule number one, is you must get over yourself. Yeah, You have to get over yourself. And mm-hmm. so you're just trying to sniff those things out. Um, you know, but you hire, yeah, you hire, you hire for talent, you hire for willingness to work and, and yeah, you know, I, and I got more right th- than wrong, but yeah. 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 How do you bring it all together in building a culture then? Uh, I think it's just, um, you know, for me it was just, it, it was leading with the heart. It was being, it was just be, always being open, mm-hmm. um, not, not being afraid to show vulnerability, um, not like bringing the company into my, whatever my personal like imposter syndrome challenges might be but not feeling like people are you know uh, like everyone's an adult we can handle this if you talk to people that way you can handle it um and then and then it's just trying to create a a culture of meaning where you know there's you you need to maintain urgency you need to maintain fire you you can't ever feel like we're good Mm -hmm. uh and that's that gets harder the longer you go. You know, I think we're seeing that even in America's institutions at this point. Like the founding of an institution organization is a play of a time of amazing potential and energy and everyone's giving everything, but that decays over time. It does. It does. And you need you need turnover of people. You need people that come in and believe in the mission. And it might be I come to think that it might be that maybe we all have like five to seven years of like pure pure energy effort that we can give mm-hmm. before we we either need a new story. We need to change. We need to change a scenery. Um, but that—that's yeah, really true. But you know, that's speak, okay. That's yeah, okay. Yeah, I speak to a lot of nonprofit organizations, and all of them sort of run out of steam about year number seven. Yeah. And that enthusiasm and that initial thrust that got them there—they have to reimagine themselves. Yeah. Cha- they have to take a step back, either with new people or new thoughts, because they can't get to the next stage unless they do. Change changes is not a sprint, nor is it a marathon. Change is a relay. Mm-hmm. It's a relay. We're all handling the baton off one to the other. And there's no shame in not being the one to cross the finish line. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things I I, I haven't thought about this in a while. One of the things I, I thought so deeply about before writing this book, because this is a it's a big swing. This is like the biggest swing I know how to take in the world that we live right mm-hmm. live in right now. And I had to think, what how do I feel if I lay out a challenge and I lay out an idea that will not be achieved in my lifetime? You know, I write in the book about 2050, and hopefully I live to then. I might not, but even then, it might not happen by 2050, mm-hmm. sure. And so, how do I feel about that? And how do you feel? 
Because you're not I writing felt, a book. You're starting a movement. Yeah, I felt liberated. Uh-huh. The more I thought about it, I thought this is this is service. This is service to an ideal. The fact that the fact that I can accept this means that this is not about me. It means it's about something bigger than that. And it made me feel less alone with it somehow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I don't know. But that idea, I'd never asked myself that question before. Am I comfortable doing this even if I never see the end? Well, what you're saying also is that you're not focused on yourself as the runner. You're focused on the baton. Yeah. You know? oh, I mean, sure. it's really the baton is the thing that you really need to, uh, to care about. Well, let's get back to the bento box. Um, you know, the lower left-hand corner, the now me, the financial maximization, that's something we can measure. And what you can measure gets done. But I get a little concerned about the measurement mm-hmm. of these other three boxes. If I can draw a metaphor from the, the nonprofit sector, everybody in this sector hates the overhead rate. How much of the money that you give to a charity goes to program and how much of it goes to overhead. It's awful. It tells you nothing about the impact or the efficiency or the effectiveness of an organization. But it still holds a lot of sway because it's a number. It's 88 cents of every dollar, and it applies to education and to health and to poverty. So as you look at these other three boxes, they're not going to be as easy to measure as financial maximization. There's no scorecard. How do you think about that to be sure that they have an equal voice in decision-making? You know, I I, I 1,000 percent agree, and and in a world where – one is measured, one value is measured, and one is not measured, the measured will win because mm-hmm. it will be the rational versus the emotional. And even in a company like Kickstarter, you have those moments yep. where you're like, this feels right, but I can't justify it exactly other than a feeling. And, the, you know, the, the, that's that's challenging. So, you know, I look to – there's an amazing book, very famous book written by Thomas Kuhn, a physicist, and it's like the theory of scientific revolutions. And this came out in the early 60s, and this is where – the, the phrase paradigm shift was invented. Yeah. And Sukun writes about how there are certain moments where existing ways of ordering society or ideas break down. There's a paradigm shift where everyone begins to look at things in a new way. And what happens when the paradigm shifts is then you go through a period of what he calls normal science, which is all the scientists or people who do work that were not a part of creating this new paradigm but are just like the doing the day-to-day jobs – they then go through the task of trying to prove out whatever this new paradigm is. Mm-hmm. And this process takes about three decades or so of people experimenting and seeing where this paradigm works and doesn't work and iterating. And so I, what I imagine for these other spaces of the bento is that we're working towards a sort of a spectrum of rationality. Maybe the first step is we can agree these spaces are real and that they matter and that things in them are important. And that might be the first step of mm-hmm. just like, yeah, we can't put our finger on it entirely, but we can agree that, like, you know, the wombat is a real thing. Yeah, in theory, we will agree with this. We'll we'll agree. So I think that's the first stage. And then from there, I think it is the normal science process of, in some cases, mathematically defining and measuring what sustainability means, measuring what social cohesion means, um, and starting to integrate those metrics and those ideals into our decisions. There Many ways that that makes me uncomfortable, like I'm not a numbers person by instinct at all. But if I truly think about the goal of an ordering of society where we're making choices that provide broad benefit, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know of a better way. Yeah. Um, so I think that it is a a a process that takes time that begins with first the rational agreement on these spaces, and then you know my greatest hope for this book is that people people really connect with this idea. If they do, I want to create an organization called the Bento Society that mm-hmm. I write about in the book that will 
consult and help people develop their bentos, help organizations like become more in line with their bentoist choices. And we'll use that money to give grants to researchers, to philosophers, to people who will help define new values. And I, I think that this could ultimately happen uh, by bringing together the ways organizations, companies, nonprofits, everyone is trying to measure their impact mm-hmm. and trying to find those universal commonalities that exist because they will be there. If you get a 1,000 smart people trying to solve a 1,000 problems in their own universes, <laughs> we're going to find some consistent things there to build off of. Yeah. So to me, to me, the ultimate success case it, you know, is this book is, is the first brick in a new kind of institution, and that institution is pursuing the, the normal science of defining new values and trying to bring these other spaces into the realm of rationality and mm-hmm. into the realm of universal decision-making. Well, that certainly is the opportunity for this current generation. And so often ideas like this can only come about and be successful when the preconditions are right. Yes. And goodness knows the preconditions are right. It seems to be, if not articulated well, on everybody's mind. And as listening to you speak there, Yancey, I sometimes think about the paradigm shift. And part of the paradigm shift may be the way we think about measurement. Mm. We think about it in a one-dimensional way, and maybe the way we think about going about measuring has to change a lot. Um, as you talk about this movement, I see you've already started to do workshops. You've had yeah. strangers come to your house. Yeah. You're doing them online. Tell us yeah. about those. Well, you know, again, sort of using that feel-sense way of, of learning the truth of things. When I first came up with the Bentoism idea, um, about a month later, I asked a friend of mine if she could have a bunch of people come over to her house and could I try presenting them something. Uh-huh. So I stood in front of a group of about 35 people and presented them <laughs> Bentoism. I cannot tell you how afraid I was. And, uh, and afterward, <laughs> afterwards, this one, this one guy came up and slapped me on the back, like this very macho uh, older Italian man slapped me on the back, and he said, you got some balls, kids. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, that's maybe the worst thing someone could have said to me at this moment. Uh, but, yeah, I wanted to try to put it in the hands of other people and just see what they did with it yeah. and see if it felt real. And so I, What I are you have, saying? Yeah, people connect with it. I've done seven of these now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done them in my house. I've done two in New York this week. Uh, I did. I've done a couple online. And where I lead people through the process of answering the questions in their bentos. And the most beautiful moment is I force people to pair up with a stranger. And they share their bentos with each other. And they talk through a life question they're facing. Mm-hmm. And like nine times out of ten, that is a transcendent moment for people. Like it's really, you know, they... Seeing yourself, hearing yourself reflected back to you from another person saying, hey, but you said you like this about you. Doesn't that mean it's like you see it on their faces. There's a moment of click. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of self-coherence comes through. Um, So I've been doing that to try to learn how real is this thing? How does it work for people? So right now I'd say there's about 60 or 70 practicing bentoists in the world. Uh, So it's starting small. And just this week I I launched a website, Mm bentoism.org, B-E-N-T-O-I-S-M.org, which recreates this workshop experience. Uh, So you'll click through a slideshow and like there's no forms to fill out. You'll have a piece of paper to write down your things. So if you want to try, you can do it. Uh, and you can also contact me there, too, if you want to, if you have questions about your bento. Yeah, no, really. That's really interesting. You know, I don't think that people have even articulated their bento to themselves. Yes. And then having to say it to someone and then have them respond to it is just completely new territory. And um, it, it, it's really fascinating. 
Finally, Nancy, what do you hope people will feel? Because you talked about feeling and mm. not thinking. What do you hope people will feel after they read this book? Yeah, I, I wrote I wrote this book wanting to create a feeling, and I wanted people to walk away feeling like the world is not as solid as they think, mm-hmm. and that our ability to affect change in this world we underrate that, and and that there's a different way to see the world, and that our our our, our our way of seeing right now is too limited, but our potential is in expanding that. And whether Bentoism is the phrase that, that is most important in communicating this, I'm, I'm much less concerned with than the idea that our self-interest and the spectrum of value is bigger than we currently acknowledge. And I think this is something we know in our hearts and our souls, but we struggle to articulate. And so I hope this is the, this is the moment when that starts to change. Well, it's the journey of your life. <laughs> this is what it has all led up to. Well, Yancey Strickler... Former CEO of Kickstarter and author of This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Give us that website again and what else they can do in addition to buying the book, and I urge them to read it. I have um, to learn more about Bentoism. Yeah, bentoism.org. You can go there. You can also find me at whystrickler.com. There's a contact button. just goes right to me. So, yeah, reach out. Well, I know you've really started a movement, uh, Yancey, when I see Bentoism up on Wiki. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. That's, that's our measurement tool. <laughs> Great Thanks, point. Yancey. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks I'll so be much. back with more of The Business of Giving right after this. The Business of Giving can be heard every Sunday evening between 6 and 7 p.m. Eastern on AM 970 The Answer in New York and on iHeartRadio. You can follow us at Biz of Give on Twitter and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving.